Hi, join us, Rad Chat, at the Oncology Professional Care, the UK's leading event for the whole oncology community. It is free for all healthcare professionals and is returning this year face-to-face to the Excel Centre in London on 24th and 25th May. Go to oncologyprofessionalcare.co.uk to book your place. and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. This is podcast number 39. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by my fellow host, Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Sarah Newman, who discussed her experience of cervical cancer and her personal training business for cancer patients called Get Me Back. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Toral Shah, who'll be discussing her experiences of breast cancer, as well as cancer and nutrition, along with her business, Urban Kitchen. So Toral, one of the questions we always ask all of our guests is about themselves, their experience, and also your career journey as well. It's really interesting to have someone who's on within your field of expertise. So if you don't mind for the audience, that'd be brilliant. So the career expert, there's a lot of questions on that, so I'm just going to share a little bit more about myself, but I'm a nutritional scientist, functional medicine practitioner, and the founder of the nutrition health consultancy, The Urban Kitchen. I'm also a three times breast cancer patient survivor, I'm not sure which, which I am yet, um, and so much of my life has really been informed around cancer. I actually originally went to medical school, um, so I wanted to become an oncologist, an oncologist, as you know, is somebody who treats uh, cancer. And when my mother had breast cancer, I realized it wasn't quite the career for me. And I started to really think about why is nutrition and lifestyle so important? Yet we don't talk about it when it comes to both prevention of cancer and prevention of recurrence. And that's what really made me sidestep into nutritional medicine specializing in cancer. So you touched on um, Urban Kitchen. What made you kind of wanting to start that up? So in those days, there were very, very few people who were talking about nutrition. That we Nutrition wasn't a, a subject that we were taught at necessarily medical school. Nutritionists weren't really a thing. People weren't studying it. And yet I could start to see from the long-term epidemiological evidence that this is something that can make a huge difference in all areas of our health and well-being. So with not just cancer, but diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all of these things. And yet some of the evidence that we had was very old. It wasn't really didn't make sense. It wasn't culturally aware. And it just didn't give people advice that really made sense for their lives or for the actual science. So we know, for example, that previously with cardiovascular disease, we kept telling people to have low-fat, high-carb diets. Now we now know that's not kind of what the advice should be. So it's just things like that have been changing for so long, yet there was no one really giving advice. And I became really passionate about it because I did a lot of research when my mum was ill uh, with her breast cancer and started to see there was a lot we could do to help her and then as I went in and did my masters I could obviously learn that and I really started to take that on for myself too. I think I think that cultural support is really important I mean we talk about personalized care in the NHS a lot and we have done for a while but when it comes to diet not every sort of oncology patient will have access to a dietitian as well so I know there's a bit about uh, prehabilitation as well for when using that nutritional advice or hydration or exercise what sort of things do you kind of do to tailor for clients or your clients from different backgrounds so first i would say most most cancer patients don't have access to a dietitian really they have access to a dietitian if they're feeding issues and that might be because they've had bowel cancer or you know one of those your head and neck cancer and things like that very few other people kind of with other cancers if you're a breast cancer patient or a prostate cancer patient you don't often get 
access to kind of nutrition and lifestyle and it's become such a big thing I'm involved with so many research committees as you said looking at prehabilitation and rehabilitation for those who've been diagnosed with cancer and perhaps people who are maybe more genetically prone to it um, from a cultural perspective there's so many elements remember food is so much more than what we eat it's our it's in celebration it's culture it's passion it's all sorts of things and so much is linked to how we eat as well now for some people it's going to really depend on you know what their personal preferences are too so we can't really go in with this one size fits all approach also in the uk we're very very poor at um may thinking you know there's no until last year there were absolutely no kind of culturally aware dietitian kind of advice so the bda the british you know, association of dietitians didn't have any eat well plates that were for afro-caribbean people or for south asian people yet this perform you know this is like 10 percent of our population so those things are now there but that only has happened since covid and you know black lives matters movement which is really ridiculous that we had to wait till 2021 for these resources to be available and also because they became available by members of the culture who did it for themselves and for their communities rather than because the association thought hang on a second we're not actually helping everyone so i actually really work with people to make sure that we're looking at their religion their ethnicity their personal preferences their dietary requirements um their lifestyle when they can eat how much you know cooking facilities you know we keep telling people it's easily to eat healthy but we're looking at whether they've even got the equipment or cooking facilities or even a stove. And you think about poor people who have not, I mean, I mean obviously quite literally poor, but generally people who live in like sheltered housing or are homeless or, you know, refugees, asylum seekers, they don't have access necessarily to even a full kitchen. So we have to think a little bit more laterally and openly about nutrition and what that means. I think that's a really good point, especially with health inequalities in the NHS. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd, everything, it really sparked an interest into these kind of culturally diverse viewpoints, if you want. But as you said, and something that's come up as a theme before is it's usually the people from that background who have to take the first step still. I think it, it's becoming a slightly better. I think in the NHS, when you look at equality, diversity, and inclusion, or the way we look at our sort of different patients but in some elements it's good but some elements it's really far behind i think one that i'm looking into sort of skincare within radiotherapy where we haven't really necessarily considered all skin tones before but now people are opening up the conversation yes it's unfortunate that it's 2022 but i suppose it has to start somewhere doesn't it toro so uh, firstly i'm going to disagree i don't think we have moved forward at all i think if anything we moved back and uh, last week the um NHS Race and Health Observatory released a report which was sadly kind of buried under other world events but it just showed how far behind we are in the UK with health inequalities. We firstly have the the poorest outcomes in cancer care in the whole of Europe and that partly may be because we have a really culturally diverse kind of group of people living here but partly because there's so many health inequalities and that's often based on the systemic racism and ethnicities and language barriers and the socioeconomic issues so that's number one number two i think it's brilliant you're doing something about the radiotherapy personally i had radiotherapy last year and one of the things that happened to me was that they give you advice for potentially when you may see side effects or burns and they say what is it what, 10 days two weeks up to 10 two weeks so the burns that I had appeared after that two-week period, and I didn't know what was happening. So I thought, oh, it's, it's over now, I'm done. You know, oh, wow, I got away with nothing. Great. And then it became Easter, and there was no one there to help me. And what I asked the radiotherapy kind of therapeutic nurse was, 
and she was a person of color. And I thought, so hang on a second, are you asking people their ethnicity and giving appropriate advice? Because I was told the same thing. And with, you know, skin of different colors with different amounts of melanin burns in different ways or has, you know, side effects of radiotherapy in very different ways. And it may be a lot later. You know, I've heard of cases but three weeks, four weeks, whatever. And I think the fact that they're not even asking the ethnicity of the patient or recording it and then recording when they get these side effects, how can we improve the advice if we're not asking these basic questions and collecting this evidence to see what we're doing? And this woman was brilliant, don't get me wrong, but she was also, hang on, I've heard this anecdotally, yet she's never been told, like trained or thought to give different advice even as a woman of color it's it's interesting so i've talked about this uh quite a few times i think in podcasts or in lectures now but how darker skin tones as you said with the, the amount of melanin so the sun protection factor we have in our skin uh, everyone has slightly different amounts so darker skin or the darkest skin can have almost 14 percent whereas lighter skin tones will have i think just under four percent but there's never been any research into this from a radiotherapy setting as to exactly as you said about the de- more of a delayed response where if there is a slightly higher protection factor normally within the skin, you know, that's going to give you more protection for longer. And I've I've heard this from quite a few therapeutic radiographers and some nurses across the country that actually some patients with darker skin tones do present past that 10 to 14 day period that we always advise to patients. So yeah, that this is something I'm looking into and I know there are other people opening up the conversation, but there's a long way to go. And until we have all kind of members of cancer team, MDTs, like thinking about this, it's going to be very difficult. There's a lot of assumptions being made and people don't even know their own bias. And that's where we have to start doing work. So there's a systemic issue, but we also have to start doing our own bias because we all have bias against different people. Even I've, you know, I've done loads of work and I, I know what I'm biased against and things that annoy me. So I think we have to really... If we really want to give good care, we have to be able to A, park those biases and really get to know what they are because you can't only be aware of what you look at. If you just ignore it, you're never going to know. And then start training people to look at their own biases. And this is a real problem within the NHS and um, in all areas. So I just find it very sad that we're in 2022, nearly, I think it's nearly 43% of our NHS workforce, which is the fourth biggest kind of company in the world, is of black Asian ethnic minorities, racialized minorities. And yet we have these crazy issues. And if you even look at within doctors, nurses, any 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 healthcare professional, they're still discriminated against. And so if they're being discriminated, no wonder it's happening to the patients. It's just very, very frustrating and sad. And, and you know, I've had to advocate massively for myself, which I can do because I'm articulate, I understand the system, I know what to do. But I really feel for the people who may have a language barrier, don't understand the system, don't really understand the science, the medicine, what's going on, and then have to deal with having a cancer diagnosis where they're not being treated as well as they could be. So, Toral, what support did you receive during your radiotherapy? Well, firstly, it was, it was after. I didn't realise till after. Um, from my own prehabilitation perspective, I knew what I was doing and I didn't really worry about the team because I you know work in the field so you know I was spending quite a lot of time making sure I was hydrated I was exercising before every session I planned all my sessions be it lunchtime or early afternoon so I could had time to exercise and eat before I went so from that perspective I didn't it really make any difference honestly it was really when I had this when the, all the skin fell off and I was it was that Easter weekend and there was no one really to help me that I felt very frustrated and upset and I was in, in, in absolute agony really for a week when I shouldn't have been. And part of it was just to do with 
the holiday period. It just happened to happen in the holiday period when there wasn't access um, to you know, specialist nurse. So, and then I think it just became even more aware of the issues and the inequalities. And I'd already faced that through. Um, so just to recap, this is my third diagnosis of breast cancer. So I, I kind of know what this is to how it all works. Um, but, you know, this is really, I had to acknowledge that it, this bias is there in every area of the pathway. And that's really sad. So Toral, how important is diet and exercise? And what would you advise to someone going through cancer treatment? So, I mean, you guys are both exercise and you know kind of the, the, the reasoning behind the exercise. And, um, you know, you probably know more about it than me. But what I know from a prehabilitation perspective and understanding nutrition and lifestyle and the impact on cancer is that exercise, particularly cardiovascular, any exercise really, if you can increase your blood flow, it's going to help reduce some of the side effects, help reduce some of the, the fatigue. From a personal perspective, it really helped me. Um, I felt like I was normal, normal, normal till 6pm and then I did crash every day. But at least until 6pm I felt like, oh, I'm normal and this is great. And I, I, I'm absolutely certain the uh, exercise helped me with that. Um, and being hydrated because essentially you're being, uh, and I, I'm really care- trying to be careful with my language, but you know, you're being subjected to a lot of radiation and, and you need more water to just for it to pass through your system. So it's really important. And it was, I was, I guess in some ways a little bit lucky or unlucky to do it all through a lockdown. So it did mean that we were just at home all day. So it's a little bit easier to drink all the water than if I'd been out and about and on the tube. Um, so it did make it a little bit easier in some ways and obviously a lot harder because I was completely isolated from anybody else. Um, so that's why it's really important. And also just eating right, eating more protein can be really helpful. Um, there's so many elements and I think it's, what what's interesting is that we don't really have structures in place to advise people about the prehabilitation impact of both nutrition lifestyle and exercise and like how getting enough sleep so for me I had to make sure that there was food ready for me to have for dinner because I had crashed so badly at 6 p.m I was just lying on the sofa I feel like I watched Bridgerton about five times because I was just like I don't remember this bit so it's just I think it's maybe giving people appropriate advice and I think a lot of cancer patients, people assume they live with other people and they have people who can help support it. I live by myself. I'm, you know, I'm young, on the younger side. I live by myself. It was really hard. Um, it had to make sure everything was ready for myself, you know, making food, defrosting it or whatever it is I needed to do. So um, I think these are things that we should really give people more advice about. In the NHS, we always talk about a balanced diet. What what is a balanced diet for anyone who maybe doesn't understand this, and what are the sort of things you might advocate for for patients to consider when they're going through treatment? So, firstly, <laughs> balanced diet is going to be different for every single person. We're all so different in so many ways. So, but I think there's definitely things that we can all do which should help improve our health and well-being. So, one of the things that we know is really important is eating more vegetables and fruits. Um, that increase amount of fiber it helps us to detoxify because we're able to bind anything we need to and poo it out essentially um i think keeping hydrated is really important i think people don't realize that eating more protein through chemotherapy and radiotherapy and even post-surgery can help you to heal a little bit more quickly um, and making sure you've got good source of zinc and things like that for your skin or for any surgery or healing and these are things that we probably don't talk about enough and, and actually can make a huge huge difference to people's recovery essentially and then when it comes to exercise it's probably about going gently and um not going into it too fast um 
other things that people get really frightened again of supplements and different foods. So we have to be really careful if you're having chemotherapy or radiotherapy and not take all sorts of supplements. But one thing that's very safe and actually is really important is vitamin D. We in the UK we're mostly all deficient in vitamin D. We don't have we can't make it naturally from the sunlight from October to March because the angle of the sun's wrong to catalyze a reaction in our skin. So we are pretty much deficient from potentially November onwards. So we need to have a dietary sort of sources of vitamin D, which is oily fish, eggs, mushrooms, all those sorts of things. But we also supplement. And the government have actually suggested that we all supplement in this COVID period um, because we know that if you're vitamin D deficient or insufficient, you're likely to have poorer outcomes of COVID too. So it's really important for your immune function. And actually, our immune function is important for cancer. Our immune function is almost like a closed-circuit TV, like CCTV, and it's going around looking for cancer cells all the time. And if it's working well, it can pick up these cells. So if we give it vitamin D, it's going to help, obviously, as well as a healthy lifestyle overall. But hopefully that's answered. I haven't quite answered your question about the balanced diet, but it is going to be different for everybody. But I think having good sources of fruits and vegetables, Make sure we have a good source of protein, some whole grains, lots of fiber, lots of water. That's going to help most people. And obviously, people who have colon cancer or stoma, it might be a slightly different diet because they may want to. Yeah, no, I think you've answered it perfectly because it is that one size doesn't fit all. Um, everyone has, you know, some people eat at different times of the day. They may be used to only having two meals a day. That's something I see with some patients who, I think, for some of our pelvic patients, especially some of the older gentlemen who I've treated who have prostate cancer, they think that by not eating their lunch, they're. Uh, the bowel digestive tract might not be as functioning for example and then unfortunately for their treatment they're very gassy and then we end up having to start the treatment again or something like that so uh, it's really important to know that it isn't one size fits all have you ever had um sort of patients or clients who've decided to change their diet very drastically after a diagnosis so for example like going to becoming a vegan for example Oh, I, I get it all the time, but I, I will talk about a particular case, which was incredibly sad, that I had a patient who had a brain tumour, a, a glioblastoma, which is quite hard to um, treat. And actually, there's been some amazing research that's come out from Imperial this year, um, literally yesterday, uh, looking at potential new treatment, which is exciting. But um, this poor patient has started following a cancer blogger who advocated a raw food diet. And this raw food diet was a vegan raw food diet. So all she was eating was fruits and vegetables. So her weight went down so low to 43 kilos. Um, and that's obviously a very low BMI. Even if you're five foot two, she wasn't, she was a bit taller. And it meant that you know, her chemotherapy was affected. She just didn't have the physical strength to sustain through that. And what was upsetting and frightening for me and it's obviously harder, you know, through the COVID period when there were, you were seeing less face-to-face people. But obviously she was going in for chemotherapy. None of the chemotherapy nurses commented or noticed that she'd lost so much weight. She'd lost over 12 kilos in a quite short amount of time following this diet. So when she came to me, we had to really educate her about understanding food, why she needed to eat, you know, all of the different things. Like started eating a little bit of protein and dairy and, you know, all those sorts of things and um, build her up slowly to try and withstand her treatment. And for me, that's where it became really scary that people are more likely to follow these cancer bloggers who are not trained at all, yet, you know, they won't take some advice from someone like me. Toral, can I just ask about um, sugar? So this is something that I always used to get asked from patients going, should I cut out sugar because is that going to feed the cancer? 
such an interesting question that's asked probably a thousand times, and I wish I had a pound for every time I was asked this question. But um, sugar <laughs> has been demonized in many ways, but I think what we have to remember is that there's so many nuances to this. Sugar directly doesn't necessarily cause cancer. Our body uses glucose for all cells for it to function, especially our brain. So we need we need sugar, and all food is broken down into glucose. Now that's where that myth comes from. It also comes from the fact that when you have a PET scan, uh, you have essentially radioactive glucose, and the uptake shows where the cells are growing really quickly. Now that doesn't mean that sugar is going to give you cancer, but what we do know is there are 13 different cancers where obesity can increase your risk of these cancers, including the common ones like breast and colon and things like that. And what we do know is eating a highly refined, high sugar, high saturated fat diet can increase obesity and that can increase your risk of cancers. So we have to kind of think about it that way. The other thing is there is a metabolic health um, link that we're starting to understand. So with breast cancer, if you've had, if you're diabetic, you're 20% more likely to have breast cancer. So whilst we don't understand the metabolic nature of cancer cells and what's actually going on, we've got several theories at the moment. This is something that maybe might become more important to people as we learn more scientifically. Now, with understanding that the insulin resistance is part of this, where your body's not quite as, doesn't recognize insulin in the same way and your body needs to release more insulin for it to work, that's going to be the metabolic aspect of it. And so we are going to learn more over the next 5, 10, 15 years and then we'll have a much better understanding of how sugar affects our diet and affects cancer uh, and whether, and, the, and I'm going to be full disclosure, this morning I had a pan of chocolate for breakfast, which is so unlike me, I will normally have a protein breakfast, but I went to this amazing bakery and I, had, and I just thought, well, it's okay, because I don't do it every day and I think we have to remember this. 80 20 80% of the time you you know really think about what you're eating having this you know fruit and vegetables and protein and eggs and whole grain carbs and then 20% of the time you know just enjoy life life is for living and we can't just run around not being scared of all food and not eating it and I know like you know for lunch I've had some um, broad bean and ricotta fritters with vegetables I've had you know I know what my dinner is going to be again so it was okay um so I think this is where we have to be authentic and honest about it and like not pretend to be holier that than thou and just say oh we only eat this because that's not true i i eat cake cake's good for you you need that it's got sugar in it (laughs) it keeps you going (laughs) i think most of us working probably in any way in the nhs we are functioned by quality street heroes something or whatever like that or someone brings in some form of chocolate cake at the end of their treatment it's that's probably one of the rewards that we do get i suppose from seeing some of the patients is food so we need it um I know we've touched on one of the myths over with sugar. I think a couple of others that maybe now that I work in northwest London where there's a bit more diversity, um, even my grandmas and my nanny always ask me, oh, one of our friends, you know, they've got cancer now. Should they cut out dairy completely out of their system because of some myths that she's heard? She's never going to listen to me, but even though she's called me to ask for my advice, what would you say to anyone around dairy or also soya? Oh, it's such an interest. Again, like... Um... A couple of weeks ago, I did a whole session for Penny Brawl, which is an integrative cancer charity, looking at the particular myths of diet for the South Asian culture, because there's even more than everywhere else. And it, it, dairy and uh, soy comes, you know, comes back um, all the time. So with dairy, what's really interesting is, and I'm going to use breast cancer as an example, with premenopausal breast cancer, actually eating dairy and high uh, kind of sources of a calcium-rich diet including fermented dairy is actually protective in postmenopausal women's having this high calcium diet it doesn't actually get into whether 
but drinking milk potentially could increase your risk of breast cancer. But prostate cancer, drinking milk, again, could increase the risk, potentially to the growth factors. But again, having a high calcium and fermented kind of dairy diet could be supportive. So what is that, what is that link to it? Potentially with our gut health, our gut microbiome, these are the beneficial bacteria that live in our uh, colon, and they perform so many amazing functions for us, including making vitamin K and serotonin and look a part of our immune function. So that might be why having fermented foods potentially is protective. And when dairy is such an interesting, because we're learning so much, and every year it kind of check the advice changes. But at the moment, the advice is fermented dairy, go organic if you can, and just have, you know, with, as with everything else, have small amounts. So with the soya, again, there was a myth because soya contains phytoestrogens, which are um, similar molecules to our kind of female hormones, estrogen, uh, progesterone. But these phytoestrogens actually um, block the receptor where estrogen can actually join onto our body, the cells in our body. So it's actually quite mildly protective. And what we know now is that having unprocessed soya is better. So edamame bees, miso, tempeh, all the kind of Asian, kind of East Asian foods, they're very protective against breast cancer and other cancers in that, well, really, really thinking about breast cancer. Um, but again, if you're having it early in life, that's actually better through adolescence. So when you suddenly are 50 something and you have breast cancer, you're suddenly like, oh, I only drink soy milk. Is that as protective? Potentially not. That's also quite, soy milk's actually quite processed. So we do need to think about the sources of our foods too. So again, it's quite nuanced. Something I only found out. Um, so I, I don't know, I grew up in India, but we always had buffalo milk. So when I came here, I never liked the milk here. And then I moved back for six forms. So then I got back into buffalo milk and then now I don't like milk. So now with oat milk, I realised that actually not every so oat milk or almond milk or soy milk they all don't have always have enough calcium or vitamins in so i only saw it today in Lidl <laughs> when i went to the shop that actually there's a different oat milk which says it's been enhanced with calcium and vitamins well you have to shake it too because the calcium will settle the phosphorus every time you have um, one of these plant-based milks and a lot of them are you know supplement you know, have added calcium you need to shake it because it all settles at the bottom and i think with the buffalo milk and milk generally a full fat milk is way tasty and you're going to get the really good quality kind of gold top sort of milk and that's going to taste more like your buffalo milk Toral, can i ask uh, for cancer patients would you suggest that they take supplements because again sometimes there's mixed advice from people about around what supplements they should take so vitamin d yes everything else you need to really speak to your clinicians but also a uh, trained nutritionist um to find out whether that's appropriate because we know that with uh, chemotherapy and even radiotherapy, if you're taking high dose antioxidants like vitamin C, it can actually interfere with your treatment. So also things like people think which are very innocuous, things like um, turmeric, high dose turmeric or curcumin, that's a really potent um, anti-cancer drug, but uh, chemical, but it can also interfere with your treatment. It can also interfere with things like hormone treatment, like if you're having tamoxifen or anything like that. So you need to really think about it. Um, my advice would be no until you've spoken to someone and then think about and, and at what point is it appropriate to, for you to have that and what is your reasoning for that too like just ask yourself why are you having that could you eat that food it's always going to be safer to eat more of the fruit and vegetables or the food wherever that uh, vitamin or mineral is and that's not going to happen because it's going to have loads of other things in it which are beneficial for you and it's not you're going to get increasingly high doses perfect I think do get asked that vitamin c question quite often 
and yeah I, I didn't know vitamin d as you said you're supposed to be having it in autumn and winter time i've always had problems with not getting enough sun so <laughs> thank you for that one it's very prevalent in anyone who's got any sort of melanin. It's it's very difficult. It's harder for us to make vitamin D in the UK, and so really everyone should be supplementing. And I'm really strict with it with my parents and myself too. But particularly if you're not if you're vegetarian and you're not eating things like oily fish and eggs, it's going to be and dairy. It's going to become really really important to supplement. I know you've given quite a few good top tips, but just for any healthcare professionals listening. What sort of things would you suggest? How could they open up the conversation with patients, especially patients from different cultures that they might not fully understand? So I would consider asking them, do you have any questions? Are there any things that you would like to know? Because then you know where they're at. They may be so more, so informed and more informed than you. So don't make assumptions just because people don't necessarily speak the language or whatever it might be. Just ask people. Number two, everyone can eat more fruits and vegetables, more vegetables really than fruits. But, you know, we, again, very few of us in the UK still hit five portions of vegetables and fruits, a portion is 80 grams. Everyone could do adding in more fruits and vegetables into their diet. And, you know, really the ratio is five portions of vegetables and two portions of fruit. So that would be my other tip, top tip. And then asking whether, you know, they've got support around cooking. Is anyone, you know, supporting them with food? Because I think sometimes that's, part of the problem if, if the caregiver at home is the one that with the cancer who's doing the cooking who's preparing the food what's happening i think that's quite an interesting dynamic that you've picked up on sometimes i think in the past i've had a few kind of elderly patients who they've been married 40 years usually traditionally the the wife has always done the cooking but they're the patient and actually the husband then is oh okay I'm not quite sure what I need to do here and I think I've struggled in the past being a bit more junior as to how to support them where I suppose for this is a specific type of example but where could people maybe direct let's say their relatives or other people they know to find out some of this more information that you've talked about so I mean World Cancer Research Fund has some amazing resources both for patients and, and healthcare professionals they even have in fact a whole have 10 modules for healthcare professionals so I would really direct healthcare professionals whether they're, you know, radiographers or doctors or anyone to do these modules, but they're free of charge. And it's a really, really good comprehensive course into understanding nutrition and lifestyle and cancer. So that would be my first port of call. Secondly, I think just kind of getting to know your patient. Like, remember we're people first and then patients second. And sometimes just a few curious questions will give you so much information and that you'll be able to give just good common sense advice and just flag up anything particularly with vulnerable patients that might be missing who may not be eating for whatever reason so those are that would be my kind of top tip is remember people are they're people first patient second there's so much more to them than their cancer but go and do the education for yourself the world cancer research funds um course is excellent Toral, if people were interested in urban kitchen and getting advice and support from you what what do they need to do so, you know, I have a website, www.urbankitchen.co.uk. I do see patients on a one-on-one basis. And I also run uh, group sessions because I know it's sometimes not economically viable for patients to see me one-on-one. We've just finished a six-week integrative breast cancer course where we've looked at all aspects of nutrition, the gut microbiome, sleep, exercise, mental health, stress, uh, environmental toxins. So that's, you know, another aspect. And then I'm pretty much on social media, so at The Urban Kitchen on Instagram and The Urban Kitchen on Twitter, and I'm constantly sharing, running workshops, doing podcasts like this, um, and hopefully I will share a few nuggets of information every time.
Oh, thank you, Toro. Honestly, I, having followed you on social media and read your various blogs and listened to you, um, you're a source of lots of information. So I strongly suggest lots of healthcare professionals listening and patients who are maybe about to go through treatment consider kind of visiting all your sites for lots of helpful hints and tips. So thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Joe McNamara, and my colleague, Naaman Jolka Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Toral Shah. Head over to our YouTube page to see the live recording of this podcast. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Dr. Geeta Ramdahari, who will be discussing her consultant, allied health professional practice, being a clinical academic, and her role within equality, diversity and inclusion. So thank you again for listening and take care.